So thank you, Lord God, that in life and death you abide with us. And Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And so, God, we thank you that you enter into our darkness. You suffer with us. You die with us and die for us. And then you rise in us as eternal life itself, for you have made us your body. Lord God, I ask this morning you would help us to preach um, your gospel, the living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Where do babies come from? Uh, um, uh, 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 um, from people. Like everybody. Mothers. Mom. Mom. Dad. Bellies. Mom's bellies. Where do babies come from? Uh, tum tums. Mommy's tummy. Your belly. Belly button. Her tongue just lays an egg like. Most of the time. Mama already put Nathan in the belly. Something pushes them into their belly. There's a little ache. It's so tiny that it kind of floats around in the air and then it just comes in your tummy. So eat a pill. Medicine. Magic. Magic makes it happen. God, God, God gave it to her. They go from heaven into our stomachs. Marriage. The mom has half and the dad has the other half. And when they get married, half of the baby and the dad goes to the mom. Egg. Storks. Bird comes and drops them off. Oh, bloody hell. <coughs> oh, get that, would you, Deirdre? That mom. I'm a kid. I don't want to say it. I don't want to talk about that. I don't really want to say. I don't know how to phrase this. I don't want to talk about it. You guys want to hear something neat? We're going to have a baby together. What? Yeah, baby. Well, you're not married. Aren't you supposed to be married to have a baby? You don't have to be. But they should be, because they love each other, and people who love each other get married and have babies. Mm-hmm. Where do babies come from? Where do you think they come from? Well, I think a stork, he, um, he drops it down, and then, and then a hole goes in your body, and there's blood everywhere coming out of your head, and then you push your belly button, and then your butt falls off, and then you hold your butt, and you have to dig, and you find a little baby. <laughs> That's exactly right. Where do babies come from? People. Bad places. <laughs> Where do babies come from? Bad places. Well, um, happy Mother's Day. Mother's Day drives me a, a little bit crazy because it's not a Christian holiday, you know. I mean, why did they have to put it on Sunday? I don't know exactly uh, what, to, what to say. Some women want to be mothers and haven't been able to be mothers. Other women are mothers and their hearts are broken because their their mother some women feel like a failure others are desperately proud of their imagined success uh, some women and men are angry at at their mom their, their their mother they feel hurt by their mother some are angry that others are mothers at all 
I mean, I hear us say things like that. It's just a shame that anyone can just, like, be a mother. We make people go to school and study for years to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be a, a nurse. It isn't a shame that just anyone could just decide to become a mother. Well, it does have something to do with shame. And you do have to decide to do something with the shame, but it's not something people normally feel like proud about. So I mean, it's not like, it's not like earning a degree or passing a test or, or working really hard and building a business. And so I understand why that little girl answered as she did. Where do babies come from? A bad place. One year I made the mistake of preaching about sex on Mother's Day. I mean, some folks got really, really mad, and, and I remember thinking, don't you know how a woman becomes a mother? D don't you know where babies come from? So I don't know that I really like Mother's Day all that much, but I really do like mothers, because if anyone understands the miracle of grace, it, it's a mom. A woman really suffers for a baby, and delivering a baby has got to be the most painful thing that I have ever witnessed. A woman works for a baby, labors for a baby, but, but when that baby is born, the mom knows that she didn't simply make the baby. In fact, the baby made her a mom. A baby's an absolute miracle, and yet a mom knows where the miracle came from. And so some think it's a bad place. Some think it's a bad place, and it certainly is a place that we all feel shame. Women, men, even children. I'll define shame as that feeling we get when something about us doesn't seem complete or finished or, or whole. It's that place where we feel inadequate. I don't think shame is bad. But what we do with shame can be bad, can be very bad, and it can also be the way to make a baby. <laughs> and nothing is better than a baby. It's Mother's Day, we're preaching through the Psalms and asking the question, where do babies come from? And I think the answer is Psalm 51, or as I like to refer to it, Area 51. It's incredibly mysterious. Psalm 51. I know this is counterintuitive, but where babies come from is counterintuitive. We think babies should come from years of study, the very best technology, the accumulated efforts of all that is best in human achievement, but that is not where babies come from. I think they come from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a prayer, and it's a very special type of prayer. It's the prayer that David prayed right before Bathsheba got pregnant with Solomon, the son of David, the prince of peace, the builder of the house of the Lord, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. This is where baby Jesus comes from. And when I say this is where Jesus comes from, I'm also saying that this is where the way, the truth, the life, and the light come from. Uh, this is where your righteousness 
comes from. Like Scripture says, uh, He is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, that means our holiness, and our redemption. We think righteousness is a product of human effort, but we can't make good. The good makes us. God alone is good. We can't make love. Love actually makes us. God is love. And love in human flesh is Jesus and his body. Psalm 51 is how David and Bathsheba gave birth to Jesus and his body. It's how you give birth to the new you, which is Jesus in you. It's how we all give birth to Jesus in ourselves and in those um, around us. So happy Mother's Day, Mother Church. Jesus said it, whoever does the will of my Father, that's righteousness, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother. You're giving birth to Jesus the Christ. Unless, of course, you haven't got the memo as to just where it is that babies come from. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, in case you're new to the Bible, let me catch you up uh, with a few things. David is, remember, the shepherd boy who's chosen by God to be king, slays Goliath, becomes a war hero, great songwriter, unifies and enlarges Israel. One spring, Israel battles the Ammonites, who worshipped Molech, whom most scholars think means king of shame. They battle the the king of shame. Um, But David stayed home in the capital. One afternoon, he goes for a walk on the roof of the palace, and he spies a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. As David told us on Easter, Sheba means seven, and seven for a Hebrew is perfection. She's perfection in a bathtub, Bathsheba. Although David was already married to several women, and although Bathsheba was already married to one of the mighty men in David's army, David called for her and then impregnated her. When David discovered she was pregnant, he tried to hide his deed by manipulating her husband to return to the city and sleep with his wife Bathsheba. However, Uriah was so devoted to David and to the men under his command that he wouldn't sleep with Bathsheba while while those men under his command were sleeping in tents out in the field at war. And Uriah was a Hittite. That's a Canaanite. So Uriah the Canaanite was more righteous than David the Israelite, the king of the Israelites. So David felt shame. In fact, I I think David was kind of like imprisoned in shame. And he sacrificed Uriah to the king of shame, to Moloch and the Ammonites. You see, David arranged for Uriah to be set at the front of the lines as they were in battle, and then he told his other commanders to pull back at a certain point, so Uriah and his men were exposed, and that's how Uriah and his men were, were slaughtered. If that's not power abuse, I don't know what is. David basically rapes Bathsheba, murders her husband, and acts like it was all a tragic accident, and then after Bathsheba mourns her husband's death, David takes her, as his wife. Do you see that it's a bit counterintuitive that Jesus would be called the son of David? 
and that David would be called the man after God's own heart. It's a bit counterintuitive that this is where baby Jesus comes from. Have any of you ever raped a woman, murdered her husband, and then acted as if you were the righteous king of the Jews? None of you? So none of you is as bad as David, it would seem. Have any of you ever written the Bible and been quoted extensively by Jesus in the New Testament? None of you? None of you seem to be as good as David, it would seem. <laughs> See, isn't that all a bit counterintuitive? Well, something was clearly wrong with David, and a walk on the roof of the palace just made that, that wrong thing uh, obvious or plain. It exposed his shame, and then David hid his shame in more sin and, and an, an entire world of lies. Lies until Nathan the prophet showed up and told David a story. Nathan told David about a rich man and a poor man that lived in the same city. The rich man had flocks and herds, but the poor man had only one little lamb, one little lamb that would eat at his table, that he would hold in his arms, that he considered to be like, like a, a daughter. But when a traveler came to visit the rich man, instead of taking a sheep from his own flock, the rich man took the poor man's lamb and served it for dinner. When David heard this story, he flew into, a, into an absolute rage and swore that the rich man deserved to die. And then Nathan said, David, you are that man. Which makes Bathsheba the lamb. Or maybe Uriah the lamb. Or maybe Jesus the lamb which would make the Lord, the, the poor man who lost his lamb, in Bathsheba and in Uriah and maybe even in uh, David. Whatever the case, David slaughtered the lamb. Nathan says, David, you have despised the word of the Lord. Nathan issued God's judgment. David threw himself upon the dust of the earth for seven days, and David prayed this prayer that turned into a song. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesed, your relentless love, your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, racham. Now, that's a word that's built from another word that's, that means womb, and this word is often translated womb. Do you suppose that the Lord feels for David like a mother feels for the child of her womb? According to your abundant womb, blot out my transgression, cries David. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. You only. <laughs> I wonder how Bathsheba and Uriah would feel about that statement. Against you, God, you only have I sinned. David took the love in Bathsheba, and God is love. David took the life from Uriah, and Jesus said, I am the life. 
It wasn't Uriah's life or Bathsheba's love that David took, like, you know, fruit from a tree or something. You know, you can only sin against a neighbor because you're sinning against God in that neighbor. Well, that has all sorts of implications, but it's like Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. And just believe the lie that your life is your own and you slaughter the lamb who sits on the throne. <laughs> the life. See, David took the love and the life and crucified the truth. Have you ever crucified the truth? Have you ever coveted your neighbor's husband or wife? Have you ever hated a brother or a sister? See, according to Jesus, I don't know that we're all that different than, than David. If you haven't thrown yourself into the dust of the earth for seven days praying Psalm 51, perhaps something is very wrong with you too. See, I don't think David is denying his sin in verse 4 when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. I don't think David is denying his sin. I think he's seen it for the first time. He took the life of the good from the tree in the middle of the garden. Something's deeply wrong with David. He does not trust the word of the Lord. He does not trust the judgment of God. He trusts his own judgment. He has little faith, is the biblical word for it. He has little faith in God's judgment, God's word. David prays and David sings a dirge. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Let me read that again, okay? <laughs> Pay close attention. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So why did David sin? Well, because something is wrong with David. But why is something wrong with David such that he sinned? Verse 4, David sinned so that God might be justified in his words and blameless in his judgment. That's shocking and kind of insulting. We think God judges because we sin, Right? We think God judges because we sin. Verse 4 teaches that we sin because God judges. And he wants us to see his judgment. We sin because God judges and wants us to see his judgment and, 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 then, and then declare, that is a good judgment. That is a good word. I, I chose evil, but your choice, your judgment is good. It's the good, my Lord. Now that is so counterintuitive, so contrary to common sense, that we might be wise to forget it. Except for that St. Paul quotes this verse and makes it the very center of his argument in Romans and the very center of New Testament theology. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Okay, pay close attention. Let God be true, though every man, every Adam, were a liar. As it is written, that you, God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When That is when we judge your judgment. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human, a human way. By no means. For then, if that were the case, 
How could God judge the world? Did you follow that logic? See what Paul just did? He argued that we are unrighteous, so everybody can see that God is righteous. He argued that we sin so that God can judge the world, and we can all judge his judgment and say, that is a good judgment. That's beautiful. That judgment is right. It's righteous. Seven days before Easter, Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of this world, and when I am lifted up from the earth, and he's talking about his cross, I will draw all people to myself. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In John 3, 19, he says, this is the judgment, the light. <laughs> the light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the judgment of God, and Jesus is the son of David. Well, David thinks he's sinned so that God can reveal his judgment. So is David to blame for his sin? Yeah, he sinned. But is he to blame as if he could have not sinned? No. God subjected David to futility. God consigned David to disobedience. That's how Paul puts it in Romans 11. God was not in the least surprised at David's sin. He's not surprised at your sin. God was not in the least surprised at David's sin. Uh, David's sin to reveal the judgment of God. David and God seem to think that all the sin, pain, suffering, and sorrow in this world is worth the revelation of God's judgment. Now that's counterintuitive, right? It's counterintuitive, I think, like birth is counterintuitive. My wife Susan went through 24 hours of the most intense pain, suffering, sorrow uh, when her first child was born. I, I just remember standing there clearly thinking, okay, this is going to be an, an only child because nothing is worth this much pain, suffering, and sorrow. Yet the moment Susan looked at John, and John let out a scream. Susan also let out a scream. I remember she just screamed, Oh, I want another one! I remember thinking, that was counterintuitive. <laughs> well, God seems to think that all the sin, pain, suffering, and sorrow in this world is worth the revelation of his judgment, as if we, like, give birth to his judgment. So what is God's judgment? Well, in 2 Samuel, where David cries, I have sinned against the Lord, and Nathan issues God's judgment. This is God's judgment in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. God's judgment is relentless love. God's judgment is grace. David is forgiven. And yet... Nathan had already told David that just as he killed Uriah with the sword, the sword would never depart from his house. And just as David took Bathsheba, someone will now take David's wives, even on the roof of the palace. Now, none of that is payment for sin. But all of that is discipline for David's heart. You know, none of your suffering, I believe, is payment for sin. 
And yet I think it's all discipline in some form for your heart, your unique heart that God is shaping in his image. Discipline teaches us to hate the evil and love the good. Discipline reveals God's judgment, and God's judgment is good. It is the good. Well, in first, or in 2 Samuel verse 12, Nathan describes God's discipline for David, but when he issues the judgment of God, he says something utterly bizarre. Okay, now it really gets bizarre. He says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Through Ezekiel, God had said, the soul that sins will die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, okay? But this is what Nathan says. The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this, David, this deed, and have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. See, it's like the child born to David is the son of David, but not just the son of David. Maybe he's also the son of God and the lamb of the Lord whom David scorned, the rich man in the story. He'll die, the son of David will die because of David's sin, and yet David's sin has already been put away. As if this son of David already died, and this is how the Lord put the sin away, as, as if the lamb died long before David slaughtered the lamb, as if the Lord put the sin away long before David sinned. See, I think we're glimpsing something that's just far too great for us to comprehend, but I hope you can at least catch a glimpse of Jesus, the eternal judgment of God. Uh, think, think with me for a minute. The son of David will die because David sinned. And yet David sinned to justify God's judgment, which is the death of the son of David. <sighs> Jesus died because we crucified him. And we crucified him because God decreed that we would justify his judgment that we would see Jesus Christ and him crucified and say, wow, God's judgment is good. It's good. God's judgment is love. And in this is love that God would give his life even before we ever took his life. On the judgment seat of God stands a slaughtered lamb. He's sacrificed from the foundation of the world. That's the edge of eternity and time. Nathan said the son of David will die. Isaiah writes, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul writes, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God's judgment is eternal. God's judgment is Jesus, son of David, son of God, lamb of God, and heart of God, offered to us on a tree in the middle of a garden. That's how much he loves you. I can't explain all of this, but the sin offering in the temple was a picture of how God takes our sin and bears it to destruction in the fire of his very being. The sin offering was often a goat. The burnt offering was often a sheep. It was not a picture of sin destroyed by God, but good deeds offered up to God who is the consuming fire that is love. Jesus is the slaughtered lamb. That word can refer to a sheep or a goat. Jesus is the Passover lamb that passes over. He's the Passover lamb to be taken from the sheep or the goats. 
He bears our sin to destruction in the fire of God's love, and he is the good in us, which is the presence of love in us, God's judgment in us, the spotless lamb in us. Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus dies for our sin and rises as our righteousness. You know, every good choice in you is Jesus rising in you. Jesus is how you are made in the image of God. God's judgment is that you will love as he is loved and as you have been loved. God's judgment is his word and his word is Jesus. You are made in the image of God with his own body broken and his own blood shed. So anyway, back to the story. Nathan speaks to judgment. Your sin has been put away and the son of David will die. David then throws himself on the dust of the earth praying Psalm 51. And when the son of David dies after seven days, David rises from the earth, enters the house of the Lord and worships. And then David enters Bathsheba and comforts her. And that's where babies come from. A bad place that turns into the very, very, very best place. For it reveals the gift of God. A baby is the gift of God. Jesus is the gift of God. You are the gift of God. David entered Bathsheba, and where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. David entered Bathsheba, and the promised seed took root in broken and fertile soil. Fertile soil. Uh, David entered Bathsheba, and she gave birth to Solomon, prince of peace, builder of the Lord's house, son of David, and great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, the judgment of Yahweh, love in human flesh, man in the image of God. I'm telling you, if you just believed the Bible, it would be far, far more entertaining than watching all of the Game of Thrones in, in order. <laughs> Verse 4. David cries, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, look, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Sex is not sin. In fact, sex is the first commandment in the Bible, be fruitful. But sex is the communion, sex is not sin, but sex is the communion of what is incomplete in the female with what is incomplete um, in the male. We feel that incompleteness in our bodies as, as shame. To hide your shame from God is sin. And to surrender your shame to someone outside of the covenant is also sin. But to surrender your shame to your helper in the covenant of grace is how you become a mother. That's where babies come from. That's where righteousness comes from. You cannot make yourself righteous by trying, at least not by yourself. That's not how you get pregnant. You cannot make yourself righteous by, 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 by trying. That's just covering your shame and living a lie. That's sin. But you can and will give birth to righteousness when you surrender your shame to your helper in the covenant of grace.
In other words, we don't get better by trying, at least not, at least not on our own. We get better by confessing our sins and trusting God's grace. That's where love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control come from. That's where eternal life comes from. Verse 6. I like the way the New King James translates this. Behold, you desire truth. Jesus is the truth. In the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. He wants to know you in the hidden part. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop branches are what the Israelites used to wipe the blood, the, Passover, the blood of the lamb on, their, on the lintels of their doors. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know, David writes in the Psalms that when he did not confess his sins, his bones, they like wasted away within him. Hide your face from my sins, your presence from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, your face. David longs for God's presence, and yet his presence burns him uh, like, like fire. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. His Holy Spirit is tongues of fire and his presence. Isn't that amazing? Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Ruach Nadiba. That's an entirely free spirit. For it wills what God wills. And you know what we call uh, God's will? Reality. <laughs> he wills reality into it. You have no idea the freedom that God has planned for you. A new heart and a right spirit in David is the judgment of God in David. It's Jesus in David. David cannot create Jesus. But Jesus is creating David. Kind of like a baby creates a mother. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, says David, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, yours, not mine. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. That's us. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David confesses his sin, and he gives birth to righteousness. He gives birth to the Psalms, the greatest songwriter that ever lived. He gives birth to Solomon, the Prince of Peace, and Jesus. He gives birth to you, the Israel of God. David is our mother, and this is where we come from, bride of Christ. Bride of Christ and mother of Christ. And you know, I, I kind of agonize over the American church, and I mean this very sincerely, both the liberal and the conservative both the Sadducees and the Pharisees. For I think that we have, like, forgotten that we're to be a mother. <laughs> We've forgotten just where it is that new life, babies, our righteousness comes from. I mean, in my lifetime, we named ourselves the moral majority. 
as if we were moral and we were the majority. And we named ourselves, I named myself, we named ourselves promise keepers, as if we were the promise keeper. There's only one promise keeper. We've focused on the family but forgotten where it is that families come from. We sing Amazing Grace, but don't believe that it saved a wretch like me. God loves wretches. When Paul uses that word, he's, he's using it like a baby. A baby can't save himself. You can't save yourself. But we're self-righteous. And it seems that we don't have a clue where righteousness comes from. We have a president that calls himself a Christian. And in some ways, he reminds us of David. Except that he cannot even remember asking God to ever forgive him. I heard that from his lips. Wow. So have you prayed for our president? That he might surrender to the word, that he might, we might, America might give birth to a reformation? Have you prayed for a president that he'd surrender to the word and be broken like David was broken? I mean, you see, the sword cuts in every direction, doesn't it? My point is that the church has stopped worshiping Jesus and made an idol out of herself. Church politics, church power, church growth. We, we glory in our shame rather than surrendering our shame. We're like a bride that is confused getting fat. Getting fat is fine, okay? But we've confused getting fat with getting pregnant. We've confused eating the lamb with surrendering to the lamb who is our groom and whose word is seed implanted in the broken and the contrite heart. So, so this is my Mother's Day message to Mother Church. This is where babies come from. And this is how you become a mother. On the night that he was betrayed, the son of David took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance do it in remembrance of, of me. This is, not just, this is not just an empty ritual. This is not just like a one-time prayer that you pray at the end of a Billy Graham crusade. This is the life. This is the fuel for your life. This is humility and compassion, and relentless love. This is your wisdom, your righteousness, your sanctification, and your redemption. This is where the new you, the eternal you, comes from. This is a bad place. That turns into the very, very, very best place. This is the revelation of the judgment of God the glory of God, absolute, relentless, and furious love. Let's pray. As uh, 
I was speaking, maybe some of you were thinking of a place. I mean, maybe it's something that you did. And you've never, ever told anyone. Maybe it's something that you do. And you are bound and determined to keep it hidden. As long as you keep it hidden, I think the cords of Sheol will entangle you. And God, in his mercy, will begin to break your bones. But if you surrender it, that bad place will turn into the very best place. It will turn into the revelation of Jesus. We'll turn into the revelation of Jesus for you, in you, and to those all around you. I know that's counterintuitive. In other words, it's opposite of the way of this world. But you see, the kingdom of heaven is opposite this world. The kingdom of heaven is relentless love and grace. What I'm saying to you, Bride of Christ, the reason I'm preaching this sermon is I want you to trust the bridegroom with that place. And so in your heart, silently in your heart, just pray this after me. Lord Jesus, I give you that place. I give you my broken heart. Create in me a clean heart and be the right spirit in me. A broken heart and a contrite spirit he will not despise. So surrender it to God and receive his glorious judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.